Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Hi, welcome back. Today, Travis and I are going to be chatting about a brand new book, which is like totally wild because mostly we talk about things that were written like millennia ago. Um, and that's going to be a bit true today, too. But yeah, we're doing something that was that came out in 2021, which is totally blowing my mind to be like so recent, so hot takey about a new book. But yeah, we're, we're going to be talking about Catherine Keller's new book, Facing Apocalypse. And yeah, Travis, can you just like sort of help us start to figure out a little bit more on the background on Catherine Keller? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I also love that we're reading such a brand new book and that some of the most interesting parts of it are about time and temporality. So that's kind of fun. So Catherine Keller teaches at Drew University in the grad division of religion, which she's been doing since 1986. So a hot minute. Her background is in process theology and her work focuses on ancient symbols of divinity for the sake of planetary conviviality, which sounds like basically a party is what she's up to. So let's get in on that party action. Uh, some of the major themes of her writing include ecology, political theology, and theopoetics. She is United Methodist clergy. And uh, the full book title of this quite interesting read is Facing Apocalypse, Climate, Democracy, and Other Last Chances. Yeah. And just in case people don't know what process theology is, um, it's coming out of a school of thought inspired by Alfred North Whitehead, um, and it's basically the, the sort of main idea. And like the other, the other one of the other big guys is is Cobb, who I think was Keller's teacher. Okay, but slow down because uh, Cobb. Fun fun fact: I was just visiting my college pastor in a retirement community in Claremont, California, and that's apparently Cobb lives in that retirement community. So basically, oh wow, wow! So you should have, you should have interviewed him while you were there. I mean, we're basically best friends now. Yeah. Did I meet him? No, but I was nearby, so yeah. I feel like that's close enough. Great, yeah. great. Please carry on. But the main idea is that um, God is to focus on becoming as much as being. So like the sort of classical idea of God is God's impassable. God can't be affected by what happens in time from the point of view of eternity and process theology is like, wait, what if we thought about God as a, as a being or a person that could be affected, that could be, that could become in the way that we become and be affected at the way we're affected and be in some sort of deeper community with humanity and with, and with, you know, by extension, I think for Keller with, the natural world. So that's just that's sort of the idea that that goes into process theology in a very a very uh, clipped thumbnail account. Um, but one of the interesting things about this book, we you know we we're sort of going we're gonna go way out of order and start with the end. Um, but Keller is writing this book a lot during the lockdown from COVID, which we're you know, it may seem like a white boy summer has, has descended and whatever, but we're, you know, it's, it's COVID still, is this still the thing? Um, but during the sort of the, what, what seemed, I think, psychologically to be the darkest days um, last spring in 2020. And just by coincidence, I'm pretty sure she was starting this, she started this book before COVID hit, but it really resonated with the themes of the book, which is her reading of the book of Revelation, a, a, a work that we have uh, devoted uh, a not insignificant amount of time to on this podcast. And if you're sick of Revelation, 
I'm sorry. That's what we're doing today. <laughs> um, but the, the thing that she's getting into with, with reading Revelation is how to think about what apocalypse means. And we always sort of have our sort of pedantic historians of Christianity thing. We're like, oh, apocalypse isn't about like the zombies and nuclear war and stuff. Um, and she's like, that's true. But she's like, we're living in really dark times. And we need to actually use Revelation to help us think through what's going on. What, some possible some possible endings for what we're dealing with. And the end is never just the end uh, with Keller. But she gives us a few examples of where she sees human civilization, in particular the, the global north, going. And so she, you know, she's like pretty upfront, like we might be looking at extinction. Yeah, and she's really concerned, as Travis put us onto, with ecology and climate change. That's like something she reflects on theologically a lot. And so like, there is the possibility of just total extinction you know it's happened to others right you know we see it every day so that's like one thing she goes into what were some of the other sorts of possibilities for an apocalypse that that keller thought through travis what were some that stood out to you yeah well one of them is could be called new jeru for the few and just to remind everyone the new jerusalem is one of the crowning images toward the end of the book of revelation where a new heaven and new earth descend. And there are lots of details we will get into later, but instead of being for everyone, new Jeru for the few here. So think gated communities on steroids, drones, other high-tech weapons, basically doom any viable resistance. Most of the population does not need to be killed outright, but are left to die of drought and famine. So it's, it's a, this is the happy ending we were all hoping for at the end of the world, right? Civilization will continue insofar as there will need to be extremely sophisticated ways to justify one's privileged existence in this brutal structure. So there, this is perhaps if you think of the continued pattern of concentration of extreme wealth in the few. This is sort of a natural conclusion to that trajectory that some CS is already on, right? Where there is some semblance of human culture, but it's at the cost of abandoning most of humanity. So that one, yeah, that one was really compelling to me. What did you make of it, Klaus? This is like the Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, like uh, tech bro with a bunker, like survival fantasy gone wrong kind of thing, mm-hmm. right? Like there's a lot yeah. of that. Like, um, and it sort of links up to another option she has, which is like a cybertopia of elitist post-humanism that sort of involves extraterrestrial colonization. But it's sort of basically the same thing. Like like, like you said, the, the gated community on steroids where the, um, the haves have a lot and justify their existence, however, <laughs> whatever ways they can, whatever, you know, psychotropic drugs they can get their hands on. Um, and, uh, everyone else dies or is basically, um, you know, in some ways not so different than now, everyone else is, is basically, uh, labored to be consumed and devoured as, as they see fit. Um, so yeah, a really elitist, dark, you know, like, uh, technologically progressive, but in the sense of only being tools for the most privileged so they can continue to exist while, um, the, uh, the, uh, excess mouths of humanity are, are left to choke. What do you make of her age of enlivenment option? This was her sort of best case scenario, Klaus. I thought I detected a, some 
some doubts on your side that this was maybe, so maybe this isn't your best case scenario, particularly around capitalism. What do you make of, th- of this option and can you describe it for us? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I'm not here to, it was curious to me that the abolishment of capitalism did not seem to be a major uh, point of, of emphasis in her account. So the age of enlivenment sort of her best case scenario, as I think you said, and she's focused on basically stopping the global warming from you know the two degrees, and that there is uh, a resurgence of social democratic norms and procedures. It's the end of white supremacy. I tagged onto this like this probably requires the abolishment of capitalism. She, uh, she didn't really put it that way, but it's basically a, a kind of uh, society doesn't have to completely destruct. Like people are actually able to get the reins and say like, what are we doing? You know, we need to, we need, on a social level, we need to change the way our whole political economy operates. Otherwise, we're going to, we're going to, you know, option A of extinction or, or other horrible options are, are really there. And it's a way of like sort of having a kind of popular politics that I think is the opposite of the new JRU for the few option, where like social democracy is actually in operation. Um, she still warns that there will be like grotesque costs that she keeps a little bit vague. Um, but it's about basically keeping the warming down and dethroning elite, sort of elite abetting white supremacy. And that's, I think, a difficult tension to hold because if you are letting go of some of these structures of power that determine who's on top and who should suffer, then how do you determine who suffers the grotesque costs anymore, right? Absent the hierarchies of race and economic class, et cetera, that the agent of enlightenment might want to uh, get rid of. Well, then mm, who's suffering those costs and how does that actually play out? Uh, here I am trying to turn <laughs> a, uh, an apocalyptic ending that is imagined into some sort of concrete reality. Give me all the details, Klaus. I think that's maybe the wrong question to ask of this text. Maybe it is. Um, I think she's just hedging, basically. But I do. For me, the the absence, the, the sort of lack of clarity about how the economy will work, and also um, a lack of clarity about settler colonialism as part of. This, you know, the sort of dethroning of white supremacy is another thing that stood out to me as like um, really sort of some, some key gaps. I think when I'm thinking about like what do I see as like a really needed alternative to our current state of affairs, uh, dealing with uh, cultural and actual, not that, you know, cultural is not actual, but cultural and like body count genocide. As sort of the foundation of these societies in the Americas is is something that I also see as really crucial um, for being part of the solution to a um, a climate apocalypse. On the other hand, I'm looking forward to the part of our conversation today where we're going to talk about utopia, because I think that has a lot to do with this little snippet we get here and also her mode of reading the book of Revelation, this idea of dream reading that we're going to get to. Because I think in those sections, she actually gets at a more compelling vision of the future that is tied to these traditions and tied to these texts and these pasts. Uh, As she poses this really interesting question, 
How can an ancient text written in a radically different context help us confront these dangerous possibilities that she outlines at the end of this book? So yeah, I think that's really a great question that you that you posed there about um, how this ancient text can help us. And it, I think it helps us concentrate on the kind of theology that Keller's doing with her reading of the book of Revelation. Um, and she's really keen on emphasizing the centrality of apocalyptic theology for the Christian tradition. But she's got a few rules, I think, a few provisos that she wants to guide us as, as we sort of get into the actual interpretation and doing the theology. The first thing is that like apocalyptic theology, apocalyptic theology, and we, 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 we've been over this, but like there's a lot of like visions mediated by angels or other sort of sacred figures. Um, there's a lot of showing and disclosure uh, through these visions. That we, that we see in the book of Revelation, for instance. But for Keller, it's really important to emphasize that these visions and our reading of Revelation now, it's not centrally about predicting the future in the singular. She doesn't think that Revelation is actually doing that. The thing that she sees in Revelation is this discernment through the visions of patterns of violence. And she, so like thinking about empire, thinking about commerce, thinking about misogyny, like she sees... Or, and also thinking about like the disrespect for the earth. Like she sees those patterns in the text. She also sort of leaves it as an open question how much the reception of Revelation has contributed to the violence itself. And I think that she is, is I, think it's, I think she does see Revelation as I kind of ironically playing into some of these dynamics where she's not sort of out to blame John of Patmos, but she's like, look, like this gets appropriated by imperial christianity or the christian right or fascistic forms of christianity to use the predictive power of revelation to justify violence and the hastening of the collapse of the ecosystem in our current moment and of course that's ironic given that revelation was written as explicitly a critique of empire although which empire is more implicit right so babylon is the empire that's in the obvious text but the sort of somewhat secret message as the critique of Rome, again, as we talked about in a previous episode. The trick, though, that Constantinian Christianity, through folks like Athanasius, for example, pulled to make it, to make revelation that is canonical and orthodox, was to see the violence against imperial Rome, that is the whore of Babylon, the nations, etc., as violence against, and this is a bit of a surprise, heresy. Right, that turn there. And that transformation of the underlying political theology that is concomitant. Right, and I think what you lose then from Keller's point of view is the kind of apocalyptic polit- political critique that you get in, in John of Patmos's revelation is really central to the early Christian thinking of theology. Um, and there's this sense in which losing track of that or losing track of revelation itself you know there's a certain i guess a kind of progressive christian desire to not really maybe think about revelation too much because it's kind of it's kind of icky it's kind of violent it's kind of weird i'm totally guilty of this by the way yes continue sure yeah yeah my mother talks about this a lot too where she's like she's she's really not into revelation and i get it but for keller it's like so much part of the history it's 
it's disclosive of patterns of violence and it's contributed to patterns of violence. And so we ignore it at our own risk. Right. Um, so there's that. The positive side of Revelation, I think, from her point of view and for apocalyptic theology is is tied for Keller, I think, to it's the erotic level of meaning in the term apocalyptic, which we, we've talked about meaning not just uh, zombies and giant you know, tsunami waves, but like apocalyptic means unveiling or disclosing or revealing. But for her, it, it's one of its original um, meanings was the unveiling or presentation of a bride. So it has a sort of erotic level of meaning. Um, and so like bringing attention to that erotic level, I think is really important when we're contrasting these sort of misogynistic depictions of the whore of Babylon that's contrasted with the new the bride of the new jerusalem but being careful to think through the implications of the erotic when thinking about christian theology is is really key right but at least for me i want to make sure that we don't stop talking about that erotic dimension because there's this very obvious level of misogyny here what i mean by that is that i think if we're to create a kind of life-giving set of readings of Revelation, one piece of that has to be keeping the desire for God and God's desire for humanity, you know, as the as the bride, as the new Jerusalem, alive in our readings. So not that that's easy to do, but I think Keller uh, shows signs of that here. Uh, and at the same time, you know, the eroticism is certainly important. Keller also emphasizes mourning in her apocalyptic thinking. Okay, so we need to be serious about what we've lost. Otherwise, we're going to be blinded or frozen when it's time to act. This is another way, I think, of taking the text seriously and not skipping over the difficult parts. It's a kind of indictment of progressive Christianity's refusal to deal with what has what has died or what is gone, what we lose, what is lost. That's depicted here again in this kind of reading that Keller performs of Revelation as not predicting the future, right? And that's how we can talk about mourning in the text. And for her, we've got this great image, the eagle who is cawing or maybe calling out, whoa, whoa, whoa. And by the way, as in W-O-E, not like, whoa there, dude. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, it's crucial that this is the, the eagle who does this, is a non-human animal mourning the desolation that we, as, a, as the human race, as the human species, have wrought ourselves. So again, as her good you know, eco-theologian that she is, she's taking into account the relation between humanity and the rest of creation and how we're not just special because on the day that humanity was created, we were very good. We're special because of what we've done to everything, right? So there's a double-edgedness to, I think, how I see her, I guess, to use the fancy word, theological anthropology, what that looks like here. So talk to us a little bit, Klaus, about um, the importance of metaphor or how, again, this gets at how we read Revelation, I think. What is the apocalyptic for her? Is it just metaphor? How does she talk about metaphor? Yeah, th there's a lot of imagery in Revelation. We even think about this eagle, for instance, and I think... Yeah, there's a there's an instinct to see these as metaphors that might be decoded or allegories that might be decoded for meaning. Um, Keller wants to call the metaphors actually something stronger, which she she terms metaphors, sort of this play on words, um, in the sense that 
these imageries, these images, these metaphors, they're not just um, nearly representative. They kind of have a, like a power, a force, a push to them. Um, and that they force us to confront the sort of cycle of violence and patterns of violence that she sees as sort of the, the one of the big uh, valuable takeaways we can get from this text. Um, and so like the kind of truth moment that you get from experiencing and engaging with these metaphors, metaphors is not just about like, oh, like this is a perfect allegory for the, the Catholic Church or for the, the, the Biden presidency or something, you know. Um, it's a code, right? And yeah. for, she refuses that idea, yeah, that relation right. is some sort of code we can crack and then we'll know the future. But it's like more about being pushed into this kind of honest, risky encounter with the patterns that we're locked into that we have a hard time acknowledging. Yeah, and then that other piece that you've alluded to before is that there's a, there's a doubleness to the way that we interact with the text. That is that we are reading it, but also it has affected our history. So these metaphors in particular of Revelation uh, have themselves been kind of agents of change in the history that's led us to this moment where we are now reading and rereading the same text. So tell us more, Klaus, about this idea of how she's reading. We've talked a little bit about metaphor now, but does she have any other images for the kind of hermeneutic that she's using to disclose these multiple possibilities of the text? Right. The multiple possibilities, it contrasts with a key metaphor. And I know, gosh, the metaphors and metaphors, as I know it's a lot, for thinking apocalyptically. Um, and it's something that she comes back to a lot, which is the idea of daydreaming, um, that thinking apocalyptically, it kind of lowers the stakes in some sense, but it's about thinking, looking at Revelation and its imagery as being the product of a daydream. And of course, probably this is like the thing that uh, atheistic skeptics would be like, oh, this guy's just, this guy's just messing around and he's just mess, you know, he, he was doodling and his, you know, and this is what we got and this is the end of the world. Um, but she's like trying to take that kind of, uh, I don't know, less, like less, I don't know, not, not less serious, but like this the kind of, um, spontaneous, uh, relaxed, like free association, power of our brains as like a, as like an important tool for trying to imagine different possibilities. What, what did you think about that as like a, as a way of thinking about revelation? It, it seemed like that maybe that was something that appealed to you about this, this text. Oh yeah. This idea of, you know, daydreaming or dream reading when she applies it to the text really does appeal to me a lot. And I think one reason is it's a resistance to that stiff or brittle way of offering revelation as, as a text that need, needs to be decoded. And it's also, for me at least, conjured up other biblical images, like from Joel, for example, this, your old men will, is it dream dreams, and your young men will see visions, something like that. And so this idea that dreaming is somehow unreal, or for example, Joseph, who dreams, dream, or who interprets dreams, there's a rich kind of Christian and uh, inheritance from the Hebrew Bible, especially, but continuing into the New Testament of this idea of dreaming as, uh, as part of finding truth and as dreaming needing interpretation and needing uh, and resulting in divine kinds of meanings, you know, spiritual readings, I guess. And so that's part of what I really liked about this idea of dream reading. Um, and 
but also what you've brought out, Klaus, that it's not, it doesn't have the same fixity. Um, and it's a means of kind of escaping these more uh, self-contained readings that I so detest. No, <laughs> so. yeah, for sure. And I think that sort of spontaneity and lack of fixity sort of corresponds with the idea that that's really, I think, really, really important for her. There's sort of a sleight of hand a little bit where she wants us to take serious the different kinds of apocalyptic in the sort of the, you know, the sort of popular vernacular sense like possibilities we have to deal with, like climate change, right-wing takeovers, uh, cyber apocalypses and stuff. Like she wants us to look at that, but she also wants us to look at the idea of apocalypse and revelation as not about one ending, about like everything just ending and there being total like finitude that's run out. Um, It's about thinking through possibilities. And she admits that they might be, maybe the possibilities are narrowing. But the apocalypse she's looking at is about the end of a particular way of doing the world versus the end of all worlds. And it's about new beginnings. Restoration is a huge theme in Revelation. And if we focus on that lack of driving off a cliff, like the complete, like, you know, driving off a cliff into outer space, uh, that is the sort of conventional read of Revelation in the end which is completely at odds with the text. I, mean, I think this is totally genius of her to like really bring home, like, this is, you just read this book and you're like, things just don't end with like the, a mushroom cloud, right? Um, then you really have walk away with this text with not just the sense of um, the feeling of powerlessness, but a sense of having some responsibility to, to sort of help steer communities towards some of the better ends of these options. That strikes me, Klaus, as really interesting. If you think about Christian millenarianism, I'm definitely saying that word wrong. Millenar- can you? How do you say that? No, you said it right. <sighs> that was right. Millenarian. Amazing. Yeah. It's a good day for me. That it is itself cyclical, right? There are these declarations that the code has been cracked, that the end time is coming, it is on this date, and then, oh, it doesn't happen, and then we come back again, and oh, it doesn't happen. I really am taken by this idea of a pattern as being as patterns uh, or cycles of uh, meaning and violence and destruction and and rebirth that are part of the human experience of time and creation. I just think it kind of makes more sense. But it's interesting how that also maps onto the ways that Christians have <laughs> tried to predict the apocalypse in the past. Don't you think? Um, oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. So anyway, I also want to just mention briefly one of the key interpretive takes that she makes here in qualifying the conventional wisdom about the tradition. Keller asserts that in, the, in biblical theology before, you know, the theology of the Bible, rather, before Irenaeus say that the idea that God is all-powerful does not also imply or contain the notion that God is all-controlling. So there's some letting things happen going on there. So it's important to kind of reflect on that distinction and and sift out what that might mean for who God is and what revelation means, not to mention the important political implications to that distinction, which maybe goes back to Levinson. What do you think about the Levinson connection, Klaus? Uh, I I was thinking uh, maybe like with Levinson we have the sense that like there needs to be this petitioning of God to get God to do the thing, which was like the sort of primordial violence against the forces of chaos. 
Um, but that I think it goes back to this idea that like this isn't just this static passive drama nightmare scenario that human beings have to watch fixedly, you know, in paralysis. It's about okay, like God's all powerful, not all controlling. That means um, if God is showing us these different options, say that it's becomes incumbent and really pressing for people who are willing to go there and daydream apocalyptically to work towards these options. It's not about the sort of the right wing, the right wing take, or at least certain kinds of right wing takes. Uh, there's a kind of radical passivity to the whole thing. Um, and there, this is trying to unsettle that or unseat that sort of uh, regnant interpretation. Okay. What about her take on the canonical, but barely status of revelation where she says that apocalypse is not gospel. Now she's not saying of course that apocalypse is not a gospel. We're not talking about genres here, but she's talking about how important and how seriously and in what manner, I think more, it's not about hierarchies of, of which text is the most important necessarily, but how then do we read apocalypse if it doesn't contain the kind of good news of Jesus's birth, death, death resurrection and I should would add, and I think in keeping with Keller, the teaching and preaching, the message of Jesus in his life and ministry, if that's really like notably absent in Revelation, and instead we have this kind of, these sets of cosmic phantasms and uh, violent fantasies and angels pouring out wrath, if that's what we have instead, then what does it mean when she says apocalypse is not gospel? Keeping in mind, of course, that it is one of the many Christian texts that's been used to legitimate violence uh, throughout the past two millennia. Um, what do you make of her take here? Do you think it's a cop-out, Klaus, here? Or do you think there's something that's sort of legitimate, um, that this, this way of uh, considering and taking seriously, but also reading in a different way that she suggests here. Do you think this all kind of hangs together or not? I think, yeah, I think it would be interesting to like get a bit more on the hermeneutical principles that she's applying, mm -hmm. but I, I see what she's saying. I mean, there, she, she does a lot to problematize the idea that the son of man is straightforwardly Jesus. Right. Uh, she does a lot to sort of show the kind of mediated quality of the text by how it, it's mediated as, as an apocalypse. It's, it's this thing that's being shown to John of Patmos who wrote it down. So like it, 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 there is this level of reflection on human participation, which is key to her politics and ethics. But it's also in this case, like this is if, if, if the kind of vision of God that we get is not straightforwardly uh, a vision of Christ's preaching and ethical teachings, um, I, I, I see what she's saying. And, and I think it is it, what she in some ways she's putting a, a, a modern gloss on the kind of icky feeling theologians have had about this text for for centuries and millennia. Right. When it almost almost didn't make it into the canon. Absolutely. Um, I also want to say in in her defense, I like that. To me, this book reads as if she takes the book quite seriously, uh, that it seems there is definitely contained in this wisdom that she is sort of unlocking and reinterpreting. And that very struggle with the text to me shows, demonstrates really that she is doing the, the hefty work, the heavy lifting of 
of what I would say is, is wrestling with the text. And I think that does bear really interesting fruit. And it's quite different from the tendency of progressive Christians that we've mentioned before to simply ignore or only talk about the New Jerusalem, for example, which is another tack that they take. Okay, so um, one of the things I really enjoyed about this book is that I think Keller is sort of similar to us in being really interested in the, the scary monsters of Revelation. I mean, I guess if you're really going to write a whole book about Revelation and you are like not so into King Kong and Godzilla, like what the fuck are you <laughs> doing, right? I mean, like, so the first monster, and I use this term advisedly, uh, is the being that is the son of man. Um, and she makes a point of showing how what gets translated in English as son of man is literally in Greek, someone who looks like a human being. Um, so that's already decentralizing, destabilizing the kind of uh, inevitable, this is Jesus kind of reading. But anyway, it also emphasizes the kind of mysteriousness, otherness that she sees, I think is kind of a healthy sort of Christian piety that the son of man is familiar even to the point of this kind of really over the top hyper masculinity and in terms of his sort of warlike affect and stuff. But the scholar Stephen D. Moore, uh, who does interesting queer readings of, of uh, canonical scripture, and I guess probably non-canonical scripture too, um, points out that one of the descriptors of the son of man is the sort of fact that he has boobs <laughs> that that his and this sort of like hyper masculine and you know androgyny or this sort of hyper masculinity like pushes the character over the top into a sort of different gendered space um so i think that that's sort of an interesting way in which keller is using the uh fantastical supernatural uh characters of revelation as a way of sort of decentering human beings um, because if, if she's like this kind of uh, climate theologian, um, human beings and they're sort of self-centering themselves in as the history of everything important in the world is a big part of the destruction. So I think like playing with the, the sort of someone who looks like a human being, that distance between looking like and being a human being, I think is doing a lot of work there. That's one identity for a kind of divine like figure. Another one is uh, our favorite, the, the monster freaky lamb. Oh, the monster lamb. So I, I do love the monster lamb, but we have talked about the monster lamb in our Revelation mini-series, I suppose, that we've done. So I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but this is a reminder that some of the monsters from the book are quote-unquote good, or we're supposed to interpret them as symbols of the good, perhaps a cosmic Christ, perhaps some other divine attribute, but still that remain frightening as hell. I mean, something is really, really wrong here in the image that we see of the monster lamb with all of its horns that it has, etc. that's uh, mirroring the beasts. So we have this monstrous... Symmetry. Symmetry, yes, exactly. We have this monstrous symmetry between good and evil, in fact, in this rather dualist universe that she also remarks on when she's talking about the book as a whole. Yeah. So what about 
moving to our next monster, the the four horsemen, right? What does she make of these symbols of pestilence and the rest of them, right? What's going on? War, et cetera, as they've been interpreted in other places. What does she do with them, Klaus? This is one of the big tie-ins to current events because she was writing it during lockdown. And so obviously the last horse, which is death, which sort of rides forth with like sort of oozing tidal waves of pestilence out is, is a key figure for her. Um, and uh, just to start with the end, like again, emphasizing a non-human, non-human like thing, the debt, the disease, even though it is sort of embodied and personified in this writer as a key force of destruction on the planet. Um, and when she's writing about this, she's like, look, like, you know, again, patterns of violence here, not predictions. You know, like, you go look at someone like Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth for predictions about how the world's going to end, and it sounds ridiculous. It's sort of the myopically presentist mode of that way of thinking is not what she's doing, but she's like, look, like, I'm experiencing a devastating global pandemic, and this text is showing me how important... Uh, pestilence and pandemic is for an imagined possibility for how human civilization changes. And I'm going to pay attention to that. And I think that's, that's sort of what she's, what she's, uh, she's not trying to induce the kind of moral panics that right-wing exegetes of Revelation do, but she's looking at the ways they, what is being shown links into the power dynamics of the present. So like, the Blood Red Rider represents colonizing empire. Okay, I'll give her, okay, right. So we have some colonizations going on here. Um, in the original context, it was about the sort of the ironically named Pax Romana. Um, you know, but the Pax always comes with the price. You know what I'm saying? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you got to pay for your protection, buddy. It's basically a mafia style, right? Like peace, Roman peace is what it's supposed to be. But yeah, it's, it's, it. It costs, as you said. Yeah, 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 exactly. Right. You know, like you got to you gotta uh, pay your share here for the piece. But mm-hmm. the other one, and speaking of that, right, like the twin, I think that something she comes back to a lot is the re- relationship between imperial violence or national violence and ex- economic exploitation in empire. So the black horseman is like the famine that comes along with economic exploitation. Um, so yeah, like this is obviously, you know, the, the Albrecht, like, you know, um, ink, the sort of the woodcuts are like these sort of fam- like one of the most famous images of the monster mayhem of revelation. And sh- they, they really are speaking to her at this point. Yeah. And they're, she's sort of interpreting them in terms of systems of power. Right. And that feels, that feels that feels appropriate and helpful, I think, to reimagine these these figures in that way. What are the threats that appear now that feel like they've got that metaphorse, if you will, yeah, of death, yeah. of pestilence, etc.? Again, carefully uh, not falling prey to the temptation to interpret pestilence as COVID nineteen or something right, else it's like ridiculous. John right? of Patmos was thinking of COVID when he wrote this book. <laughs> This is how I can prove it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Unlocked. Well, that. stay tuned for our next book, which is obviously about that. So you're welcome yeah. in advance. So we have the horsemen um, as key uh, coordinating metaphorses in uh, metaphorses, metahorses, you know, going on here. Um, <laughs> and another really iconic uh, baddie is the red dragon. Um, so what she do with, with that 
monstrous metaphors. Metahors, Travis. Yeah, this feels like a big baddie, as you said. Uh, you've got the this red dragon in chapter 12 of Satan, identified as Satan, who stands for the forces of destruction looking to obliterate life. Well, okay, but what does that look like, right? That sounds really general. But she relies on an image of the Industrial Revolution era smokestacks that William Blake in particular saw as satanic. And she writes about this multi-headed dragon of race, gender, sex, class, ability, nation, species, vomiting varied supremacist biles, as if they were toxic waste of so many kinds. So it's a big image here that a kind of composite of several different systems of power and oppression and evil, which I think makes sense when you're looking at, you know, that ancient serpent, the dragon, the devil, Satan, uh, to, to interpret it in that way. But she goes on, right? The dragon goes together with the mother and infant portent in the sky. So we're following this chapter 12, these sets of images here. And uh, Keller emphasizes the trauma of birth in her reading here and points to the two red mouths of the dragon's mouth and the vulva because you have this image in chapter 12 of the, the woman giving birth and the dragon waiting to clutch the baby and take it away and do whatever dragons do with babies. I'm actually not an expert on that, Klaus. What is, what is your take? Well, I think what I would imagine is that they just eat them like uh, a piece of sushi or something, you know. Because, um, you know, hungry. So that stands to reason, right? But I really like the way she brought in details of, of being present and being intimate with people who had given birth and sort of the trauma of birth yeah, as a way of being like, oh, this is just like an image that people gloss over, like the woman in the sky gives birth and whatever. And she's like, let's just pause. Let's just think about that. What, what that entails for the mother and child and, you know, especially the mother. Um, and as we're reading this, this, this part of the text. Yeah, absolutely. And the other, another feature that I really appreciate about her interpretation here is she doesn't jump to the reading of the woman as Mary and the child as Jesus, which so many Christian interpreters do. Um, instead, she, she points to that interpretation as, kind of obscuring the possibilities that were that were there in the original contexts. Uh, instead, she sees the daydream personage of a queer millennium of ecological, racial, social, and decolonial justice and spirituality. That's how she sees this woman, right? And questions, maybe we need to call her what she looks like, which is a goddess, which is also kind of titillating for our Orthodox readers and interpreters. What did you make of that part, Klaus? What did you make of this kind of more cosmological, like keeping the tension of who she might symbolize? What did you think of that interpretation? I thought that was really rich. And she resists the obvious move of making the woman in the sky Gaia or Gaia, like the the, right. the, the, the divine personification of the earth, because the earth actually helps the woman escape the toxic cause like sort of bile of the dragon, the dragons, the flood, the sort of classic chaos image of the dragon and the flood that revelation shows is sort of chasing the woman as she sort of like seeks solace um, in, in the desert, I believe. And um, so like 
Gaia is already there as a character, so cannot be the person who's saving herself, you know, even though, gosh, we're talking about Christianity, so the Trinity, you know, we can do that kind of like uh, saving ourselves by sac- by sacrificing ourselves kind of thing. But so she's like, it's not Gaia. No, it, it can't be with the stars and the moon, like the, yeah. the images that yeah, are there. Right. She is literally cosmological. She's of the heavens, yeah. right? Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think it is a really, um, it's a, it's a great, it's a great distinction and a great way of, of sort of introducing the feminine divine while also doing it in a nuanced way. Yeah. And she also goes on to interpret these sets of symbols that we can read into these symbols, um, particularly the dragon as, as having something to do with climate change. Um, right. And the impending doom that she mentions at the end of the book is one of our possible fates and, and doing so, and pulling apart these images, she talks about her friend whom she calls a tree monk, uh, a person who practices permaculture, which evidently has to do with, <laughs> which I totally did not know. Dude, you, le- you live in California. You don't know what permaculture is? Dude, come I on. don't know about permaculture. Don't tell anyone. Oh, wait, I'm podcasting about it. Um, our mil- our anyway. millions of listeners now know, so you're fucked. Yeah. Um. I know, but now they're going to be looking it up. And you just volunteered yourself to explain what permaculture is, Klaus. Congratulations. Yeah, I mean, I'm no expert, but I, I've had friends who are. And it, it's basically about um, cultivating uh, plant life that is helping to support the native systems of growth in the inner region. So doing planting and raising vegetation uh, with an eye towards sustainability and sort of not just sustainability, but also sort of like a systematic fit between things. And not not that that's like really like cold and over-rationalized, but the sense of like this whole thing has to work together. Like I'm not just like putting a bush here. Like this all has to work together as a system um, to create some kind of more viable, permanent kind of uh organizational biological community. Yeah, and she she draws a parallel between the vulnerability of that child being born of the woman almost into the maw of the dragon. She ties that image to these trees that her friend, the tree monk, is is nurturing. There's right. a sense in, in of California, like, I think too, where like they're the fire, like the, the risk yeah. of, of like wildfire and drought are just like incredibly extreme. Um, Which makes that, gives us that sense of extreme vulnerability of those trees um, that connects to that child, that there's a kind of radical hope going on there in that care and that set of practices that is, you know, against the, what's these colluding forces of, that, that lead us to climate change, the greed, you know, et cetera. Right. And it's not about like, oh, like, let, we're just leaving California. It's like, no, like, it's about trying to create this permacultured, you know, trying to like, you know, by dint of, of like, tender care for each of these, these trees, like trying to make the system work and not just abandon it to the dragon. Yeah, honestly, it's one of the most beautiful parts of the book, I think. Yeah, this, I thought, this yeah, section. it was one of my favorite parts. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, Klaus, let's get on, though, to everyone's favorite beast. Can you tell us a little bit about that one? Well, the beast came to me in a dream and told me that we had to name our show after it or it was going to bite my head off. So, yeah, we're talking about <laughs> <laughs> the beast of the sea with yes. seven heads and ten horns. Keller covers a lot of ground and her bases. With, this, with her analysis of this image, um, pointing out, as I think we've talked about, how the seven heads stand for the seven hills of Rome, so sort of making that allegorical connection real. Um, 
and getting into how the wounded head of the the sea dragon is in correspondence to the the wounded lamb but it's also a mockery of the lamb so the thing i think she brings that's really interesting is how much mockery is a part of the imagery and metaphors of revelation and so I, I really thought that that was, that was key. Like, and it's not just about correspondence or symmetry, as we just said, but it's also about like, oh, uh, this is a parody. It's like, oh, oh, you lamb, you're, you're, you're bleeding. Oh, wow, well, that's, that's, that's really impressive. Like, I'm a freaking dragon. I'm bleeding too, you know. Um, <laughs> this is what your bleeding has gotten you, you know. Look it in the face. So yeah, mockery is, is great. And um, what's one of the things that she's like, I think she's attuned to how important mockery is in prophetic literature in Christianity, but there's also like a danger uh, to it, I think, um, you know, because like this image is a mockery of empire, right? It's clearly talking about Rome, um, but it's like, what happens when y'all get your own empires? Like what, like uh, who's the joke on then, right? Uh, so I, I really like that she's she's attuned to this. Um and so we, we have like this sort of historical connection to Rome. Um, and so the idea of the sort of mocking dead head or sort of lethal, mortally injured head, um, she sees as, and she, I'm sure she's drawing on some good scholarship here. Um, well, you know, because uh, I didn't do due diligence and check off her footnotes. Um, but <laughs> shit. Um, but that uh, it, it court, the, the, the sort of mortally wounded head could be Nero and there was like rumors that that Nero you know Nero uh was the the sort of crazy emperor who let watch Rome burn and you know played the fiddle or whatever um had a lot of Christians killed for it also by you know as, as sort of a scapegoat uh, by reputation but had been dead for two two decades during the t- during the writing of Revelation um but there was a sense of like again like there were these rumors that Nero was going to come back from the dead and again like layers of mockery it's like like weird connection, like sort of mimicry of Christian tropes. Uh, like, you know, like this is, this is the real Messiah. Like zombie Nero is going to come back and save the Roman empire, you know, or something. Um, so yeah, like really great, just like attention to the double-edged sword that is Christian mockery or and, and mockery in biblical theology too. There's, there's a great book about this, um, Laughter at the Foot of the Cross that I, I recommend, um, and the author of which I am forgetting right now, but Laughter at the Foot of the Cross, the title will get you where you need to go. Um, but right, we got the Beast of the Sea, you know, but this isn't the only beast in the circus here. Like, what's the other beast we're going to talk about here? Like, what's this, this beast is sort of like uh, crawling around on all fours on the ground. Tell us about the Beast of the Land, Travis. I mean, everyone's second favorite beast is definitely the Beast of the Land, Um you know, lots and lots of interpreters, just to kind of orient us, lots and lots of interpreters have identified this as the Antichrist, uh, but, the, you know, it's not there in Revelation. The image doesn't come up there, but that's the beast of the land. And the beast of the land does a strange thing, <laughs> uh, a very strange thing, and makes a kind of graven image, right, which is has a long history in especially the Hebrew Bible, um, this idea of making an image and worshiping it as an ultimate no-no, right? So that, I suppose, isn't that surprising that he makes uh, an image a t- but uh, of the beast of the sea. But what's weird about it is his image that he creates has the ability to speak. 
And Keller makes a big deal out of that because one of the easy demonstrations, oh, you're worshiping these statues, but they can't talk, but we worship a living God who talks. That was the big aha moment um, in ancient Israelite religion, their trump card, if you will, um, against these other civilizations that that worshiped images um, or, or used images in their religious practice, mm, more likely. Yeah. In any case, um, this is, this is a, a step beyond that. There's something really awful going on because this image can talk. And she makes a really, a set of interesting comparisons from this talking image of the beast of the sea, right? The image is, the, the land beast makes the image of the beast of the sea. Uh, and she compares that to Big Brother from 1984, but also like these screens that are in front of all of our faces in the 21st century and the kind of addictions we have to those screens uh, and, uh, and and offers this kind of amazing turn of phrase, uh, Fox and, I don't know how to say it though, Fox Angelicals, I suppose, something like that, as a, as a primary example of this kind of talking images that we deal with in our society. And that those who worship this image of the beast will be burned in the presence of the angels and the lamb. That's from Revelation. But this also represents a huge real-life problem for Jews and Christians who had to deal with the demands of the imperial cult, uh, the beast, if they wanted to do business in the markets of the empire. So she's constantly drawing our attention back to the economic and real-world implications, both for at the time that this was being written and in our present day. So we have one more monster to, to discuss, Klaus, unless you have brilliant commentary on the Beast of the Land. And that's everyone's third favorite monster, obviously, the Whore of Babylon. Though I would venture to comment that this is not Keller's favorite monster. What, what is your take, Klaus? It makes me happy because it brings back the Beast of the Sea upon which the Whore of Babylon rides. True, um, true. So yeah, we're, we're back to square one here. But she has a great question. I mean, maybe she doesn't love the Whore of Babylon. And she ha- and it helps her, I think, make this point about how Revelation isn't gospel because of the sort of extreme misogyny that goes into this metaphors. Um, but she poses a great question in that, like, okay, the Whore of Babylon, right, represents Rome. Um, but wait a second, didn't we already have a monstrous monstrosity already doing the work of, uh, allegorizing Rome? I mean, we do, but we also, she doesn't mention that we also have two Neros, right? We have, Mm. yeah, we, we've got the, the land beast is often identified with 666 as Nero, right? But then we also have the head of the sea beast, one of the heads being Nero. So, you know. Welcome to welcome to the history of interpretation of Revelation. So it's yeah. not just on her. I just mean this is constantly part of this. Good luck to you. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorting through all these symbols and attaching meanings to each one. Yeah. I, she has an interesting read, though, which is because the, the horror of Babylon emphasizes commerce is in part of its imagery. Like the sort of idea of the nations or the kings being in a state of intercourse with Rome. Um, that's about having an economic relationship, and it's 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 not a stretch when you when you're looking at this this image to see that like it's 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 not totally counterintuitive about like what intercourse you know interchange uh, you know the sort of transactional status of this relationship. Um, so the the way she parses it is to see like the the beast of the sea represents uh, the kind of 
political, military, nationalistic side of empire that it's about that's about like forceful domination and that the that the horror of babylon is all about this other side of empire which is economic soft power domination or ex- economic exploitation and resource extraction that is you know the uh the bread and butter of empires of the world to this day um in fact we're doing it better than ever um but so so like she has she makes this good point about like okay like why do we need to have this misogynistic image of the whore of babylon okay well it helps us explain the economic side of global empire but she she you know she asks a great question she's like well has prophecy slipped into pornography when we look at this way of, of of figuring rome and figuring empire more generally um and i think that's a really great question like it it has has uh, has revelation you know been like fallen into its own trap like has it sort of lost the disclosive power of the prophetic in favor of the pornographic like what what do you think about that as a as a as a way of sort of questioning the status and the sort of the truth giving potential of this text part of it is a historical question i would say you know this book barely made it into the canon, but I think that the this is also a question about the sets of images, that their captivation, their, their possibility for keeping us looking in a pornographic way in this sense, right? We can't look away from the series of train wrecks um, in these images of violence, these pornographic images, etc., um, that that appear. So there is a kind of power to the text that comes from these. And so I I think that that's problematically part of the appeal of the text. It should not stop us, though, from... um, And I think Keller does a great job of this. It shouldn't stop us from the kinds of dream readings and interpretations that need to come out of it. And I think it's also just okay to say this part sucks. (laughs) Move on. You're not to ignore it. Right. I really admire what she does because she's like, she can say it sucks, and then she can be like, "Look, if th- what we get in ap- in the apocalypse is that the beast of the sea then sort of like turns on its rider and devours her and attacks her, mm-hmm. she's like, "Look, if the beast of the sea represents nationalism and it represents the sort of like the nationalistic ethos of empire, and the horror of Babylon is international capitalism, then we have like this really compelling allegory for." Uh, the kind of right-wing politics that we see in Brexit, that we see in Trump, that we see in Modi. Like, that, you know, th- 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 there's actually something really interesting about, like, how an empire can fall upon itself and be torn apart by the contradictions of its different ideological and material systems. So one of my favorite chapters of the book comes at the end on the viability of utopia, thinking about utopia, what that means, and how that's super important because there's this image at the end, a really captivating one. I heard um, presiding bishop Michael Curry actually giving a talk this week at a conference. He's the head of the Episcopal Church um, about this the New Jerusalem. When people talk about apocalyptic ideas in Christianity, we all get nervous, but he really likes the kind of positive 
interesting, the new creation that comes out of the chaos uh, that's in this vision we see in the book of Revelation. And, you know, Keller's treatment of it is super interesting, I think. So I'm excited to talk about that here. A crucial point for Keller is that the apocalypse does not culminate with the destruction of creation, but renewal of creation. Again, uh, something that the presiding bishop also seems to have liked. So there are key symbols for that Keller goes through when she discusses the image, the images of the New Jerusalem at the end of Revelation. So Klaus, why don't you talk to us about a few of those images? Sure. Um, I think one of the first things I noticed, it's almost less of an image, a particular phrase that Keller uses, which is the idea of the, quote, imminent emplacement of divinity in the city. And so Keller is is writing, um, her, her home institution is not very far from New York City in a very densely urbanized northern New Jersey space, right? And so I think the, the hope of the city is something that's really important to her. Um, the city as a place that is cosmopolitan and maybe has some potentially radical approaches to dealing with climate change in terms of very practical things like public transportation or rooftop green stuff and, you know, the elimination of auto traffic, so on and so forth. Um, but for her, it's about the way in which divinity becomes a place. It's not just a, a white man with a white beard and a white sky, you know, laughing or some shit, you know, like it, it, it's about like it, the way it's sort of materialized and emplaced. Um, so that's a really key thing. Um, and of course, the way this emplacement works is New Jerusalem, the name of the city, of course, John's sort of writing in the trauma that is the loss of old Jerusalem uh, through the aggressions of the Roman Empire. But also, right, of course, in keeping with that, New Jerusalem is the answer to the Whore of Babylon in terms of the renewal of creation. The Whore of Babylon was about the exploitation of creation. Um, this is about the redemption of both city and nature. The idea of a city that isn't just about resource extraction like this you know sort of like uh ominous octopus with its tentacles around the whole world it's about like at the roots of a tree as sort of the opposite but sort of symmetrical image to that and again i think like sort of playing with her image of the city as the thing we have modernity in spite of its huge carbon emissions for instance that is like a place of potential this sort of place of diversity it's not about nationalism that cities are cosmopolitan and i think that's that's really crucial yeah the kind of rubbing shoulders we have with one another in this utopian space now you know projecting forward and thinking about diversity not as merely difference and a source of conflict that's so evident in our world now but this this possibility it's is quite beautiful the way that she interprets that image, I think. She also talks about the city in this important way uh, that symbolizes, represents the Holy of Holies in the temple itself. Because again, we're, we're in this book, she's seeing a kind of therapy, if you will, uh, to counter the trauma of the loss of the temple and the, its violent destruction. And she gives some of those images, the accounts from the historians about what that looked like. So here we are. And instead of having a holy space that is 
governed by the separation of the sacred and the profane. Here are the walls. Here's the inner court. Here you're finally in the Holy of Holies in inside the temple. But now instead, the dimensions of the city um, that, are, that are given in the text show that the whole city has become the temple. There's no need for this kind of formal cultic space that we had before. Yeah, it's like the end of religion. It's kind of yeah. a funny way. Right? Which well, is yeah. so weird, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting. Okay, well, wh- what about the Genesis? I'm, I'm really taken by the way not just Keller, but other Christian theologians have thought about the relation between, you know, garden, uh, the Garden of Eden, that sort of thing, and this city. You know, what? how do we relate these two paradises, if you will? So, so Klaus, what did you read in Keller on that? I think, I think this is a great tie-in to maybe the next episode on origin because you like who's a Alexandrian theologian from the third century, whatever uh, <laughs> different person. But like whenever you try to ask, like, how do things begin? Like, what is the origin of everything? Uh, origin, origin, origin. Yeah. Get, you get nice. Uh, ha ha. Um, the answer is always like, well, you can't know anything about the beginning until you look at the end. There's this this total configuration of compatibility and, and sort of recapitulation that it's actually the later recapitulation that tells you the truth about the beginning. Um, so I think that's like sort of a great sort of tie in the way that Keller is showing the Genesis imagery and working with it um, to do her theology. Um, but yeah, there's uh, there's a key image from Genesis that appears in the representation of the New Jerusalem, which is the tree of life, um, which stands on either side of the river that's sort of running through the center of the city. It's like, man, like cut out, cut out the expressway. We've got a river runs through it, man. You know, like that's yeah. what we got going on here. Um, Get it. And, and so like we, we have the, the tree that was, you know, the, the tree that was going to be the, the gateway to eternal life for humanity that, the, you know, sort of the consumption, the premature consumption of the fruit of the tree of knowledge uh, made unavailable. A long detour, perhaps, is a better way of thinking about it. Um, but paired with the tree is this imagery of, of life-giving water. Um, and I, yes, I will keep saying that like the mayor of Easttown. I don't not give a fuck. Um, I secretly put that word. Yeah, I secretly, I secretly um, keep putting in uh, ideas about water and um, female children or daughters, uh, so that we can hear the beautiful dulcet tones of your, you know, place of origin, (laughs) origin again. So yeah, yeah, that's my fault. Sorry. The end. The end explains the beginning. Yeah. Um, Right. So she's using this examination of this imagery of the river to think about an alternative to, and in some ways this is the paranoid, the paranoid side where it's like, Oh, like, right. Like uh, we're not going to be fighting about oil in the future. We're going to be fighting about water. We already are, you know, and, and say like, <laughs> yep. look like there's going to, if we do what we need to do, it's, there's going to be enough water. We're going to, this is part of the vision of hope, which is not just this, this sort of, cutting off this um, resource extraction warfare and resource hoarding warfare, which is so characteristic of late capitalist, neoliberal uh, capitalist, carbon capitalism. But it's also like spiritual rehydration that being able to share, being able to like treat other human beings as human beings 
um, is not just a rational program of resource allocation, but is actually a spiritual practice. Um, well, so, that, yeah. that I think gets us to this idea of utopia, right? So etymologically, you know, it comes from this 16th century book where the, the, the neologism is Thomas More. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> thank you. Um, called utopia, uh, his work called utopia. He made up this word. It means no place. That's the official uh, the official answer. But Catherine Keller, she does this several times, like <laughs> doesn't start with that. And I kind of love that about her her writing. She starts with wondering about the way that in Greek you can also, if you hear this word, it could be good place or no place, and you can't tell just by listening. And so, she, like the way the way euphemism means, you know, euphemism means like you're putting a pretty face on something that's not great, but it's about like saying something like pretty or well, you know, it's like that sort of sense of you as like, no, or you as like, it's good. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So containing it within these two sort of possible interpretive uh, possibilities, right? Uh, So which is it? This, this vision of the new Jerusalem, is it a no place or is it a good place? And, um, and how do we deal with that? And I'm thinking about your not just resource allocation, but the spiritual practice of sharing water that you were just that image you were just discussing in relation to this idea of utopia. Um, you know, how do we deal with our desire for an impossibly good world when everything seems like it's going to shit? And then, Klaus, you were thinking about this idea of whether we deserve a utopia when each of us has bought into the destruction of the planet and humanity in different ways. And uh, I first want to say all this talk of the good place, right, reminds me of this TV show, which we should probably talk about at some point. Which is a TV show literally, literally called The Good Place, right? Yeah. Oh, sorry. It is literally called The Good Place. It is a TV show, um, and it has to do with uh, heaven and philosophy and moral philosophy in particular. And I think we would have interesting things to say about it, but... This idea of whether or not we deserve utopia is, for me, kind of the wrong question. Um, Though, in many forms of Christianity, the answer is, no, we don't deserve utopia or heaven or whatever, uh, but through grace, you know, it it becomes available to us um, as human beings. Now, on the other hand, I do love that the New Jerusalem is a city and not just a garden, though it has aspects of the garden. It seems that the framing of biblical good places or no places it's not between identical spots, right? Um, which suggests some sort of evolution that this, this detour you were talking about before Klaus <laughs> through all of human history after we ate that first fruit from the other tree, you know, isn't uh, for naught, I suppose, that something important has happened as we move from garden to city um, through the disasters, both human and divine, of the world that we, that we are living in. Yeah, what do you think? Felix Culpa, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it was all part of the plan. All part of the plan. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think even again, an all-powerful God versus a not all-controlling right. God, right? Like God can be all-powerful in this kind of apocalyptic theology without being like, oh, I have my fingerprints on every part of this little game I'm playing. You know, yeah. um, I think that that's it. Where it's like, yeah, it it can be redeemed. You know, did it all have to happen? No. Oh no. <laughs> did it? Did, did every no. detour to the to the tree of life have to go that way? Did we have to take I ninety five through East Town? Like no. Like you know, like it's it, we didn't have to do that. But we, we we you know here we are, and so we have to we have to deal with what we have, right? So I think that that's something that for me, like right, that 
the no place, good place thing works that way where it, it, it is the redemption of, of human suffering is a big part of this story um, and, and can't be ignored. One thing that occurs to me as I'm sort of reading through this work and, and thinking about this is that part of why it's hard to think of an, a, a utopia that we deserve is like, it's just so hard to think up a utopia ex nihilo. Right? Like, like to think of an, a utopia that has that's that I just spun out of my stupid brain, right? You know? <laughs> um, and and so yeah, like I think like it, it kind of reminds me of like okay, well, like utopia ex nihilo. Like we're we're back in the sense of like what is divine creation? Like did God just make the world out of nothing? And you know you have like right Levinson or or you know or. Keller herself, right? Absolutely. Well, to me, it sounds like you want to read her other book. Um, and she's not paying me to say this, but it sounded interesting to me. Face of the Deep. And that's where she talks about, she she says actually no to creation ex nihilo as a th- Christian theologian, which is sort of a big thing to say no to, <laughs> just as a side note. And instead, yeah. and maybe this is part of that process theology um, that is her training and her expertise, but she talks instead about cre- creation ex profundis or creation um, out of the depths to oppose this 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 other idea, um, the traditional doctrine of creation ex nihilo, with instead a theology of becoming, right? Because becoming implies that there was something there beforehand, whereas creation ex nihilo, there the, there's the isness and then there's the non-existence, and that's that's all you have. But it, fr- from that place, you can imagine a very different way of what it means to be a human being in the image of God. I would say if God is becoming too. Yeah, and if we just bring this back to, like, thinking about what the world is in these mythological s- statements and stories versus how we're trying to mythologize for ourselves, but, like, not mythologize, but trying to imagine a utopian possibility, you kind of need to start with something. You can't, it, you know, starting ex nihilo is really hard. And, like, yeah, maybe the creative genius of some novelists would disagree but like, it's not as if novelists are ignoring mythology and scripture when they're coming up with their stories either. Maybe this is, I throw down the gauntlet of a challenge, like come up with utopian that has nothing to do with anything else that anyone's ever thought of before. Like, good luck. Right. Right. But that, you know, that's the knownness. Lean hard. Your challenge is to lean hard into the knownness of utopia, right? The no place. Yeah. And I think like, just to sort of like start to wrap up, I mean, we're talking about the apocalypse and we're talking about different ways of imagining a way through it all that isn't just like awful. Um, and the the sort of the formal doctrinal category for thinking about this moment of possibility is usually thought of as meaning the doctrine of the last things, which is eschatology or the eschaton. Um, but Keller does this thing, you know, as, as, as theologians and philosophers with some relationship to the continental tradition are want to do, um, doing some etymological gymnastics with <laughs> the terminology. And so she, so she shows that the idea in, in, in Greek of the eschaton or of the, the last things also has the sense of an edge, you know, almost the edge of a blade. Um, and so the edge of the blade is the edge of possibility sort of cutting through um, the old you know, sort of the dead skin that's sort of, you know, sort of dried out on the outside of things. Um, And so it, again, it sort of comes back to this point of we need to think about a good place, no place with some sort of resources. 
um, in order to hone that edge, sort of cut through the sort of dead ends and maybe live possibilities of apocalyptic theology. So like we need to get rid of this idea that like the apocalypse that Christian theology is working with is this zombie apocalypse, this sort of just, you know, complete catastrophe in order to sort of actually come to grips with our own responsibilities and possibilities for, for changing the world into something more utopian. Well, I think that's all we've got time for this week, Klaus. Thanks everyone for listening. See you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.